you have your Bibles, you can turn to a couple of passages of Scripture. Romans chapter 2 and Romans chapter 8 will be in both of those places this morning. As I mentioned, the first half of this series is not heavily based upon the Bible because what we're showing is that there is a lot of evidence for the existence of God outside of the Bible. Although as a Christian, it's hard for me to get away from the authority of Scripture. So I don't know if you've caught, we've, we've quoted Scriptures every week, which is okay. Um, because ultimately that's where we're going, and we're going to show why we believe the Bible later in this series. And um, today we really wrap up uh, a, the first subsection in our study on the existence for God, making a case for theism, which is just a basic belief in God. And our theme passage for this series has been this one, 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. And kind of the overall theme for this series has been that it's important for us to examine the components that have led to our belief, to our faith, because it is only in understanding better those components and reasonings that we can have a faith that is stronger and a more humble interaction with others. And so the goal is to know why we believe and what we, uh, to, 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 to know what we believe and why we believe it, and then to be able to communicate that to folks who do not believe. And so, in fact, if you're here today and you do not believe in God, it's our prayer that throughout these studies that you'll see why it is that we believe. And ultimately, all to a faith-based decision in something. And uh, we would just make the case that in the beginning, God is easier to believe than in the beginning, nothing. And so God spoke this universe into existence. And we've been looking at this for the last few weeks. And so in our first uh, message in this uh, sub-series, uh, God, Are You There? The Existence of God, was we looked at the cosmological argument and how this universe leapt into existence out of nothing. And we looked, and, and, and here's how we formulated that argument. Everything that had a beginning had a cause. The universe had a beginning. Therefore, the universe had a cause. And I would invite you to go back two weeks and listen to that podcast if you missed it. It'll be very helpful to you to see how modern science has even discovered that at some point, all this leapt into existence from nothing. And so it points to a creator. And then last week, we looked at the teleological argument. And the word teleological is from the Greek word telos, which means design. And so we said that every design has a designer. The universe and life have highly complex design. We looked both, again, out at the telescope and also at the microscope last week. We uh, zoomed across all of God's creation and saw intricately woven, fascinating engineering marvels. And just how God put all that together. Isn't it incredible? When we look at all that, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And so, therefore, the universe and life had a designer. This week... We look at the moral argument. And these three arguments, there's, there are several more. Uh, Alvin Plantinga, uh, a scientist and a philosopher, put together a paper several years ago about 20 to 22 arguments for the existence of God. But these are the three strongest. And so these are the three that we've been looking at. And so today we wrap up this subsection of our study on theism with the moral argument. And so... The Bible says this in Romans 2, verses 14 through 16. Here's our scripture this morning. Romans 2, verses 14 through 16. And I have a portion of that highlighted. But I'm going to read all three of these verses. So hold on just one moment and let's read this together. It says, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts 
the mean in their thoughts, the meanwhile, accusing or else accusing one another, accusing or else excusing one another, in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. And so, thank you, air conditioner, and so the Bible says they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. Um, I'll be honest, over the last couple of weeks, you might not remember a lot of what I've shared. As I, as I told you, this uh, series cannot be exhaustive. We don't have enough time to do that. I hope it's just a launching point for you to go and check out some of the resources that are on the table out there, send in emails with questions, have conversations in your small group or with someone who might be discipling or mentoring you here in our church, and to work through these things. But a lot of the last two weeks was science. It was scientific. Uh, today is more philosophical. And honestly, today's argument, you're going to more easily take with you regardless because, as we've just read, this is on your heart. The argument that we're going to be looking at today, the moral argument for the existence of God, is something you're going to take with you from this room today because God's law, in a sense, is self-evident to the human heart. And so as we think about this, think about it. If there is no God, there is no objective foundation for saying that anything is absolutely wrong or absolutely right. And here's the formal way that you would organize this moral argument. Every law has a lawgiver. You know, as you rode down Danville Road this morning and saw that speed limit sign, which probably not many people follow, but if you saw that speed limit sign, right, you would assume that that didn't just happen, that that just didn't pop out of the ground because someone planted a seed know that that sign was made and that sign was designed by a lawgiver and they established that speed limit law and so we assume that every law has a lawgiver therefore there is an absolute moral law and that's what we're going to really look at today is there a case for an absolute universal moral law meaning there's a universal understanding of what's right and there's a universal understanding of what's wrong and if that's the case therefore then there is an absolute moral lawgiver because if there is no God, then there really is no objective foundation for saying that anything is absolutely wrong or absolutely right. It's just a matter of degrees of opinion. We might can say that we don't like it, that it wasn't convenient, that it makes us sad, but we can't say that something like what happened on September the 11th, 2001, is wrong. But everybody on this planet knows that when they look at something like that, there's something in their heart that cries out, that is evil. That's wrong. It's not a matter of just opinion. We can look at something like what happened in the Holocaust, where six million plus people were tortured, brutalized, treated like animals, and then ultimately killed in the gas chamber. And we can say it's not just our opinion. But that is evil. That is wrong. And so as we look at this, we have to dig deep and see that if there's no standard beyond humanity, then it's just your opinion against bin Laden's opinion, your opinion against Hitler's opinion. If there is no objective morality in this universe, then it's just a bunch of opinions and a bunch of preferences. But we intuitively know that that is not the case. Every prescription has a prescriber. There is a moral law prescription that is written on the heart of every human being. 
Everyone knows intuitively that there is a standard outside of themselves that they ought to live up to. I heard how one theologian put it. He says, we are all every day having a conversation with ourselves about knowing what we ought to be doing. He's right. There's this conversation that we have continually with ourselves, and somehow we know that there is an ought in this universe. And so with that, this message today is going to take shape in two sections. The first section is going to blaze by, and that's what your notes are for. And the second section, we're really just going to look at this question of human, um, uh, of evil, pain, and suffering in this world in the midst of humanity. And so with that said, look at your notes. You've got some things to write down there, and I hope you'll take this with you. I think this will really help us as we think about this moral argument. And what I want you to see today is how if you... How some people try to make the case for morality in one section over here, but then they try to make the case for no morality over here, and they can't have it both ways. There is an absolute that everyone is appealing to, whether you claim to believe in God or not. There is an objective moral law in this universe that governs and guides the hearts and the affairs of men. And so how do we know that there's an objective moral law in this universe? You might say, okay, pastor, I hear what you're saying, but how do we know this? Well, number one, moral absolutes are undeniable. Moral absolutes are undeniable. Now, we know this best by our reactions, not our actions. What do I mean? I've heard people try to theorize that drilling into babies' heads is not wrong and it's not a big deal. You know, where they partially birth a baby and then they drill into the baby's head and, and, and stick a vacuum tube in the back of their head and suck their brains out. How many of you are already turning in your stomach right now to hear that? Yeah, there's actually people who say, oh, well, that's not morally wrong. That's just someone's choice. But the moment you take a drill and start going for their head, they're going to say, whoa, 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 whoa. So moral absolutes are undeniable, you see. We can sit over here and theorize how drilling into a baby's skull is, is just someone's preference, someone's opinion. But the moment that someone goes towards that person who's making that relativistic claim, as soon as someone goes towards their head with a drill, they're going to say, whoa, 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 you better not, buddy. Why? It's just your opinion. Do you see? Moral absolutes are undeniable, and we know this best by our reactions, not our actions. You might say that stealing's not a big deal, but the moment someone steals from you, it's a big deal. So we know that moral absolutes are undeniable. Number two, we cannot know injustice unless we know justice. How do we know that there is an objective moral law in this universe? Number two, we cannot know injustice unless we know justice. You cannot know what is not right unless you know what is right. For instance, this week, have you turned on the news at all or, or, or looked at your social media feed and stopped and said, that's not right? If you did, by you saying that's not right, there must be something in your thinking that you must know that is right. Do you see? So we're, we are appealing to an objective standard. When we say that something's not right, then we must intuitively know that there's something that is right. C.S. Lewis, the person who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and several other classic uh, works of literature, he used to be an atheist. But he said this about his search for God in the midst of his atheism. He says, as an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. So we're going to be looking at that today. The universe does seem to be broken, cruel, evil, full of pain and suffering. But he, he has to be honest with himself. He says, but how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked 
unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? What C.S. Lewis was pointing to is the reality that there was something written on his heart that he must have known there was a straight line so that he can compare this crooked, messed up universe with. There was something in his heart that said, this is not the way it was meant to be, which points us to someone and something greater. And so moral absolutes are undeniable. How do we know that there's an objective law? They're undeniable. Trust me, if someone comes at your drill with a head, you're going to say, whoa, stop. Yeah. Uh, Number two, we cannot know injustice unless we know justice. If we say that there are some things that are not right in this universe, that clearly tells us. So, for instance, one of the things that I hear all the time is how we should treat a certain class of people a certain way. And catch it, we should treat. So they're saying this is not right. We should treat a certain class of people this way. But then over here, they say that another class of people deserve no protection. So we should protect immigrants and and, and all this. And I hear this moral outrage. I see it on social media. I see it on the news. This moral outrage of how these poor children are in in cages. And whether that, I don't even know, you know. I mean, mean, there's so much quote-unquote news going around. So so, so there's this moral outrage about kids in, in, in cages. But then you have a child in a mother's womb, and that's no big deal. Spare me your moral outrage. Do you see the inconsistencies of those things? How can you say that one is a moral outrage, but then you look over here? So we, which brings us to the third point. How do we know that there's an objective moral law? Number three, the fact that we have real moral disagreements implies that there is an objective moral standard. You have no ground. If there is no objective moral standard, you really have no ground then to say that Mother Teresa was better than Hitler. On, a, on, on just a moral level. Whether these two individuals were saved or not, I mean, clearly we know that one has no evidence of that. But whether, whether salvation, just talking from a moral perspective, just morality, just good stuff, how do we know who's right and who's wrong in this example between Mother Teresa and Hitler? Unless you're gauging them and you're measuring them to some objective standard outside of themselves. Let me illustrate it this way. Here are two maps, and, and, and this is a great illustration from one of the books out on our table, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, by Frank Turek. Here's two maps of Scotland. How do we know which map is a more accurate reflection of the country of Scotland? How do we know? Unless there is a real unchanging Scotland to compare the two maps to. So, class, which map is more accurate and fits better with the real unchanging Scotland, map A or map B? Map A. And so when you say that Mother Teresa was better than Hitler, what you're doing is you are appealing to some outside real unchanging standard to which to gauge that comparison and contrast. And so that's what point three is saying. How do we know, how do we know then that there is a moral standard outside of ourselves because we have these disagreements where we try to compare back and forth, all right? I love what the Declaration of Independence says about this. It says, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Notice the words self-evident. Where did the human heart get these qualities that that, that these are self-revelatory? They don't need to be argued. They're, 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 They're just there. That all men are what? Created equal. 
that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life. It's so sad today that our own declaration of independence is no longer protecting the rights to life for people. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I'm thankful that the Declaration of of Independence went on to say that the government's role was not to provide these rights. No, they're self-evident. The government's role is to protect these rights. And so as we see this, we see that there are real moral disagreements. And the reason for those is because there is an objective moral standard outside of us. Number four. We wouldn't make excuses for doing wrong if there was no moral law. This is a good one. (laughs) You ever been stopped by the man in blue? You ever make an excuse for why you weren't following the law? (laughs) Guilty. (laughs) We wouldn't make excuses if there was no moral law outside of ourselves. Have you ever noticed how... How you react when you do something wrong and we immediately seek to excuse it, avoid it, cover it up, blame somebody else, deflect. C.S. Lewis went on to say this. He says, it seems then that we are faced to believe in a real right and wrong. What's his evidence? First, human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave a certain way. Second, they do in fact behave in that way. The truth is we believe in decency so much that we cannot bear to face the fact that we are breaking it. And consequently, we try to shift the responsibility. What is Lewis saying? He's saying that there's evidence of an objective moral law outside of us because we go so quickly to trying to make excuses for why we're not living up to it in our hearts and in our lives. And so we know that there's an objective moral law. Why? Because moral absolutes are undeniable. We show them by how we react when people treat us immorally. We cannot know injustice. We can't know that something's wrong without knowing that something is objectively right. The fact that we have real moral disagreements implies that there's an objective moral standard. Number four, we wouldn't make excuses for doing wrong if there was was no moral law. And then finally, we wouldn't know the world was getting worse or better if there was no objective moral standard for that comparison. We wouldn't know. We wouldn't have any way to compare unless we had an unchanging, real standard. Now, let me be clear about what we're not saying about atheists today, and I think this is important to be said. So this is in your notes as well. Number one, we're not saying that atheists can't be moral people. I've seen people... Uh, who, are, who are unbelievers, who deny the existence of God, and they can be very moral people. We're not saying that atheists cannot be moral. We're also not saying that atheists don't know morality. Why? Because God has written this on the heart of every human being. The law is written on our hearts. We know what's right and wrong. Our conscience bears witness of that fact. So we are not saying that atheists cannot be moral. We're not saying that atheists don't know some standard of morality. But what are we saying? Here's what we're saying. We're saying that atheists cannot justify morality. They cannot justify it. What what does that mean? It means they have no ground or unchanging standard upon which to build their system of morality if if there's not an objective standard outside of themselves. So you can claim certain things are right or wrong, but it goes back to that issue. You can't say that Mother Teresa was any better than Hitler. 
What's your standard for comparison if it's just you? Atheists cannot justify their morality. That's what we're saying. And atheists can theorize about how we know murder is wrong, but atheism provides no objective standard that establishes why murder is wrong. Sometimes what you'll hear within these secular humanistic arguments is you'll hear that, well, we know that murder's wrong because our mother and father knew it was wrong, and as uh, mankind evolved, they just understood that, that murder was wrong. Question. When a, when a lion eats a zoo tourist because the zoo tourist climbed the fence at the lion exhibit at the zoo, do we throw that lion in jail and then put him on trial for murder? Do we? No, we don't, because we know there's a difference between the animal kingdom and human beings made in the image of God. And so we can say that we can theorize about how, but still there's no objective standard for why murder is wrong unless we are truly made in the image of God. And so that's what we are saying. We're saying that atheists cannot justify their moral arguments without some objective standard to appeal to. Now, we agree with atheists. Number one, some atheists are, live better moral lives than some believers do, and that's sad. But that is the reality. Some atheists live better moral lives than some Christians do. And then number two, some who say they're church people have poisoned the teachings of Christ. Um, be very careful when you get into arguments with atheists and they appeal to the worst examples in Christianity. We're, we're not saying that Christianity has not done a lot of terrible things in the name of its religion. I mean, look at the Crusades and what was happening there. Look at uh, sexual abuse that happens in, that, that's happened in churches over the years. Look at, look at all kinds of abuse that has gone through churches. We're not saying that, that uh, Christian people are perfect people. They're not. They, that, that, that's why we all need saving. And it's sad that some church people have poisoned the teachings of Christ in our world today. And so we agree that, that there's some atheists that probably live better moral lives than some believers. And, we're, and, and we also agree that, unfortunately, many church people over the centuries have poisoned the teachings of Christ. And so we agree with the atheists on these issues. But as we look at this, and this is where, uh, this is the second half of our sermon, and this is where the, really the rubber meets the road. So, so there's the moral argument. And, and, and honestly... The, the law of God is written on our hearts. This is undeniable. And you can read books and you can watch debates on this, and I hope that this will spark your interest to go do more of that, but to see why we can identify the fact that there's a standard outside of ourselves. But here's the objections that you'll get to the moral argument. The first one is the intellectual ob objection. And that is, when you go to college, teenagers, young people, when you go off to college and you go to a freshman philosophy class or you go to one of those sophomore classes where they're going to start working through philosophy, they're going to try to make the case that, moral, that, that morality is relative, meaning there is no objective morality. You like vanilla, I like chocolate. We just all have different preferences when it comes to right and wrong. And what they're going to do in that intellectual objection is that in that class is they're going to present a what? They're going to present a moral dilemma. A moral dilemma. 
And most often the moral dilemma that gets put out there is the one about the boat. Now, I love Gary Larson. How many of you are Farside fans? Gary Larson, this is a great little cartoon. They evidently are stranded in this boat, and the dog is talking to the guy who drew the short straw, and he says, fair is fair, Larry. We're out of food. We drew straws, and you lost. And so, unfortunately, they were trying to decide. So, 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 so here's the moral dilemma that gets presented in these, in, in these philosophy classes. You're, you're on a boat. You're starving. You only got enough food for a few days left, and you got so many people on the boat. And if you keep all those people on the boat, then you're going to die faster. And so there's this moral dilemma that's presented. Who are you going to throw over and kill so that the rest of you survive? And so they'll get off in their small groups and they'll try to, you know, work through the problem and, and yada, yada, yada. Now, when you go to college and you get presented with this moral dilemma, which is supposed to be an intellectual argument for the fact that morality is relative and, and there is no right and wrong, you might choose to do one thing and your group might choose to do the other thing. What you need to stop and ask the teacher is, Professor, if there is no objective morality, then why the dilemma? In the moral dilemma problem, there is no moral dilemma up for consideration if there is no objective morality. Do you see the roadrunner tactic? Do you see the self-defeating nature of a moral dilemma to begin with? Why is it even a dilemma? Why are you even getting over in groups and trying to discuss amongst yourself, well, we should throw off this person or that person? Why the moral dilemma if there is no objective morality to begin with? So, that's the intellectual objection to the moral argument for the existence of God is people, is most, most atheists will say, well, it's all relative. Really? Do you really live that way? Because here's what's crazy. The moral dilemma and the intellectual objection to morality gets brought up, but we all know that the bigger issue in this issue of the moral argument for the existence of God is the emotional objection. The emotional objection. You see, there's two ways to look at this issue of the moral argument, both from the intellectual case and the emotional case. And when we deal with this question of evil, pain, and suffering, here's the issue. We don't just observe pain, evil, and suffering, but we are in the middle of it. We experience it. This issue touches all of us deeply. Maybe a great way to illustrate this is the oncologist, the cancer doctor, looks at cancer most of the time from an intellectual perspective. But the patient looks at cancer from an emotional perspective, especially if she's just been told, and told she has six months to live. So the doctor tends to look at cancer, disease, pain, and suffering from an intellectual perspective, although they are empathetic with their patients. But the patient who's just heard this, it hits them in a totally different way. And this is the issue with evil, pain, and suffering as we look at it. Because the big question is this, and the philosopher David Hume said this. He said, Epicurus's old questions are still unanswered. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then is he malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Whence then this evil? This has been a question that's been asked for hundreds of thousands of years, all the way back to Epicurus and before. In fact, it's even more ancient than that. 
Have you ever read the book of Job? The big question in this emotional objection to the moral argument for God is, how can there be a God when this world is in such a mess? How can there be? And we're looking at two kinds of evil, aren't we? We're looking at moral evil, the evil that men do, and we're looking at natural evil or the disasters of this world, the tsunami in 2004, earthquakes, pain, disease, suffering, storms. So there's two kinds of evil, and as I mentioned to you, Job, and this is why I love the Bible, because the Bible, from the very beginning, Job is a very ancient book. It was written around the time of Genesis 12, very early, and Job addresses this issue head on. In fact, Job said it like this. He says, yet man is born into trouble as the sparks fly upward. You know that Job faced both kinds of evil? Job faced natural disasters. His children's lives were taken from him in the matter of a day. Evil men came and robbed him of most of his wealth. Job had a very bad day. He suffered both kinds of evil, moral and natural. Job suffered greatly. And so as we look at this question of evil, pain, and suffering, and we ask the question, how can there be a God when this universe is in such a mess? That question is an emotional question because it's not just something we're dealing with intellectually because everyone in this room has faced pain and suffering, probably evil from the hands of people and from just the hands of the way the universe is, is right now. And so neither worldview, let me just be clear as I seek to answer this question this morning and just state this, neither worldview, neither atheism nor Christianity answers totally the question of evil, pain, and suffering. If it did, the debates and the discussion would have ended centuries ago. On some level, we still wrestle through this major question. But the real question we should be asking is, out of these two opposing worldviews, whether you believe in God or you don't, a belief in God and an unbelief in God, is there a worldview that at least gives us a way inside with some measure of understanding and some measure of hope? You're not going to have the question of why does evil, pain, and suffering continue if there is a God. That's not going to be exhaustively satisfied for you today in this one message. But the question is, which worldview makes the most sense in the world in which we live? So let's start with the atheist worldview, shall we? And try and answer that question. How does atheism address the question of evil, pain, and suffering? I'm about to present to you a quote from Richard Dawkins, who is the lead spokesman for the new modern atheism, written books such as The Blind Watchmaker and The God Delusion. And here's what Richard Dawkins says about this issue of good and evil and human pain and suffering. Are you ready? This is the atheist worldview, and I'm thankful that he was honest. In the universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. 
DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. That's the atheist worldview. Right there in black and white. I'm thankful for the brutal honesty of this atheist. Dawkins and others of his worldview say that we're merely biological machines at the mercy of our genetic programming. Some are going to get hurt. Some are going to get lucky. There's no good. There's no evil. We simply dance to the music of our DNA. So you're going to tell me, Richard Dawkins, you're going to go over to Auschwitz and you're going to look at a Holocaust survivor in the face and you're going to say that uh, Hitler was just dancing to his DNA. Does that make sense? Does that worldview really help us to at least begin to cope with the question of pain, evil, and suffering in this world? See, here's what's crazy, is atheists will say that there's no good and evil, but wait a second. Don't I hear Richard Dawkins and others of his worldview who say that there is no God complaining that God is evil? Okay, wait, you said that there is no good and evil, but you say you don't believe in God because something doesn't line up. It sounds like something's written on Dawkins' heart that he's betraying. It sounds like he does know that there is a universal good. You see, if there is no good and there is no evil, then, 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 then that's a meaningless statement to say that God is evil. What do you mean if you say that there's no objective standard by which to judge it? But what really he's saying is, I'm the standard. Yeah, and that's been the case since the beginning when man tried to become God. In short, the skeptic cannot explain evil by denying an objective moral law. And they cannot deny evil without losing their challenge for the existence of God. So does this make sense of what we experience every day? You see, the atheist has to admit that without a transcendent standard of good and evil, there's no foundation for anything. Yet when we look at the world of suffering... And we see evil and natural disasters, slavery and murder. They use those things to point to the fact that God doesn't exist. Why? My simple question is, is where did the atheists get their notion of wrong if they don't intuitively know that it shouldn't be that way? Do you see? So atheism brings us to this glaring reality that were nothing more than evolved monkeys. Frederick Nietzsche said this. He said, the biblical prohibition, thou shalt not kill, is a piece of naivete. He's basically saying, you're a simpleton if you believe thou shalt not kill. He says, life itself recognizes no solidarity, no equal rights between the healthy and the degenerate parts of an organism. One must excise, meaning cut off, kill, the latter or the whole will perish. You know what Nietzsche's saying? Survival of the fittest, baby. That's what he's saying. Nietzsche is basically saying in this quote, why any morality at all if all of life is just non-moral, biological, evolutionary processes? But the question is, are they? This is the question. Because it seems that we discover within ourselves undeniable, objective, right and wrong. A moral compass, if you will. It seems like within inside of every human heart, there's a true north screaming out. And we know it because in every human heart that I've ever met, there's a cry from the bottom of their heart for justice. Justice. 
You see, they show the law of God written on their heart. And so the question of good and evil brings up this other question, and that is the question of justice, see. One of the big questions that arises is this question of justice. Now notice what Darwin says. Darwin says, in atheism, there is no justice. You're fighting for something that doesn't even exist. There is no justice. That's what he says. If atheism is true, think about it. If atheism is true, and when you die, you die, that's it. The lights go out. You don't have any recollection or any memory of yourself. You cease to exist. If that's the case, then most people in this world who have ever lived on planet Earth will never get justice. And if there is not a life after this life, then there is no life to get justice in. But did you notice our text this morning in Romans 2? It says in verse 16, In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. You know what God's saying in Romans 2? He's saying not only is there a moral compass inside the heart of every human being who's ever lived, so whether they want to try to ignore God or not, they've got the law in their heart, but there's also this innate understanding in every human heart that there's going to be a day of justice. A day of justice. Ultimately, this world will stand in judgment and justice will be done. Now, this doesn't answer all the questions centered around this question of evil, pain, and suffering. But at least in the Christian worldview, if we know there's going to be ultimate justice, that gives us some measure of hope. You see, neither atheism nor Christianity removes the reality of continued suffering and evil. But all that atheism does, though, is remove all hope. By banishing God from the equation, you have by definition banished all hope, for God is the very essence of hope. Atheism is a hopeless worldview by definition. If you don't believe me, look at the quote again. I blew it up for you. Dawkins said, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. There's no hope there. And there's no hope for ever getting justice in that worldview. But I get it. The question remains, doesn't it? Brian, you're telling me the God who formed the atoms, you know, the very microscopic particles of our existence, the God who holds the universe together, who invented light itself, who painted every color in the sky and and in creation, the God who invented that amazing human mind that you talked about last week, why couldn't God have made a universe that didn't get itself into such a mess? And that's a legitimate question. Why couldn't he have made a universe that didn't get itself in such a mess? Couldn't God have made beings that did not sin, that did not destroy each other in a creation that did not have pain, disease, disaster, or death? You know what the answer to that question is? Of course God could have made a universe like that. But it wouldn't have been worth living in. We, we create universes like this all the time in the laboratory. They're called robots. I've been married to my wife for almost 17 years, 18 years. You know, when I go home at night and I walk into the house, my wife doesn't have an iPad implanted in her body. She's not a robot, and I don't go over there and, you know, tap on the KISS app, and I get a big old kiss. That would be weird. And she would be a robot at that point. There's no, sometimes she might feel like she's a no, but, but she's not a robot. She has a free will. The very fact that we've been married for 17 years and she knows all about me and yet she chooses, that's, that's the key. 
she chooses to love me. You see, of course God could have created a universe of non-moral beings. In fact, you have that in the animal world. They have no sentience. They have no conscience. As I said, a lion doesn't sit over there and fret why he killed the gazelle and had a good lunch. He just did. So what happened is, is God made us with genuine choice of free will. You would never be fulfilled if you married a robot. Why? Because it's not real. Oh, it might be enjoyable for a couple of days. Hey, when I press this button, I get this. When I press this button, I get that. But that is empty. Why? Because that robot's not choosing to love you. C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, in order to make beings which have the genuine capacity to love, they must also have the genuine capacity to hate. For what is love without the risk of not experiencing that love? That's what makes love real. That's why your heart fluttered when your, when your uh, soon-to-be spouse wrote back that letter and said, I love you. That's why you read it multiple times, because there was a free will choice involved there. That's why these young people hope to one day find their true love, right? And they're in the search for it. Why? Because is there someone in this universe that would choose to love me? So if we're going to have the capacity to say yes, then we must have the genuine capacity to say no. Why? Why do we have children? Have you ever thought about this? Why, why do we have children? I will never forget. And yeah, there's Caitlin, Joey, and Lukey. And what a walk down memory lane this week as I thought about my three kids. <laughs> And how I held them in my arms on the day that they were born. Why did Rebecca and I decide to have kids? You know, as I hold those kids in my arms, could they grow up and say no to me? Yeah, there's a genuine risk that I could bring these children into existence and they could grow up and one day say no to me. So why would I take the risk? Because we realize that granted the risks involved, the benefits far outweighed the risk. What are the benefits? Genuine love and genuine relationship. To live in a universe where love is possible, of course, we all pray to find that genuine love, and that's why we go in that search for true love as singles, right? And what we're doing in that search is we're saying we value genuine love. And so what did God do? God took a risk when he made this universe as it is, with people made in his image, with a mind and emotion and a will to choose. And so in that will, they were capable of saying yes, but there was also a risk that they might say no. And out of all the ways to explain why is there evil, pain, and suffering in this world, the only answer, the best answer I can give is because we do not live in a universe where we are robots, but we live in a universe where genuine choice is a part of our existence. 
And because of that, even in the midst of the capacity for, for, for great good, there's also, unfortunately, the capacity for great evil. Now, that's the reality. That doesn't explain everything, but here's the good news. Because as you think about why would God create children? Why would God make a creation in his image, just like my kids? Why would he create all of us in his image? Because the benefits far outweighed the risk. Well, the question then becomes this. Granted that there is this risk in the universe, and clearly we live in the midst of the brokenness of it now. The question you have to ask yourself is when God created man and woman in the garden, and he understood the risk of creating a free agent who could genuinely choose to either love him or reject him, the question then, of all questions, is did God make any provision if things went wrong? And that is the core of Christianity and the gospel. You see, we've been talking for the last several minutes about pain and evil and suffering and why. But for the next few moments, I want to tell you about a God who suffered. A God who stepped into human existence and suffered with us. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 5 says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs. Surely he's carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. You know what that's saying? When God came to this earth, he didn't just suffer. He didn't suffer at the hands of natural evil. You know who he suffered at? The hands of moral evil, the evil that men do. Men did evil to God. And God willingly suffered that evil. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. What are these verses telling us? They're not telling us that, okay, you got all the suffering and evil and hardship figured out. No, it's not, it's not going to fully answer that. There's always going to be somewhere this, still this question of why. But at least what it tells us is this. God has not remained distant from the problem of human evil, pain, and suffering, but has become a part of it. So the atheists say, blind, pitiless indifference. No good, no evil. Some get lucky, some don't. DNA just dances to it music. No hope. Over here, okay, we live in a broken universe where there was a genuine risk involved in making free agent beings who could say no to God. And when they said no to God, they were saying no to everything that was good, perfect, pure, and lovely. And because of that, we fell into a broken universe. But the good news is, given the risk... God was able to take that and he was able to turn that. He was able to redeem the brokenness through him stepping in and suffering with us. This doesn't solve all the problems around the question of evil, pain, and suffering. But at least the Christian worldview gives us a way in 
to perhaps see that the final chapter has yet to be written. That the ending is approaching where every story and every fairy tale whispers to the ultimate reality that there is a prince who will come and awake us from slumber. That there is a beauty that can transform the beast. That there is a king and a kingdom for which we were made. That there is a happily ever after. For God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death. I'm going to probably scream it that loud when he says it on that day. Neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. That's hope. That's hope. Now, how can that be hopeful? Because 2,000 years ago, and you'll have to come back for the rest of the series to see this, but 2,000 years ago, The Prince of Glory died upon the cross. He was placed into the tomb. And on the third day, he defeated death, hell, and the grave. He came out of that grave saying this, that death is not the end. Atheism says death is the end. The empty tomb says no, it's not. There is something that atheism knows nothing about. In atheism, when you die, you die. Therefore... Think about it. What ultimate meaning do you have then? In fact, meaning is just a figment of your evolved imagination. That's why the Bible can say things like this. Why do we have hope? Because of the resurrection. And the Bible says this. For I reckon, notice this, that the sufferings of this, say it with me, church, this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. So do we all suffer? Do we all experience pain, evil, suffering? Yes. But the question is, what has God done to deal with it? To deal with it so that it's only a present moment. It was through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that he gave to us ultimate hope. Ultimate hope. So that we can say things like, God God works all things together for good to them that love him. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who shall be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You see it again. God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. And so the message of the gospel confronts this issue of pain, evil, and suffering. Granted that our experience of life is full of ragged, raw, evil, and suffering, is there anywhere in the entire universe where there is evidence that we can trust God in the darkest of our problems and our pain? Anywhere. I submit to you that yes, there is one place above all, and that is the cross and the empty tomb. This is the hope that will endure, folks, long when this world, as we know it, has faded into the distance. 